ask to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. It is not the same as what is in your bulletin. It is not the author of the bulletin's fault that it's different. I told her that passage because that was what's on my mind. But that very day, my heart impressed with Matthew 21 as that was part of my own devotions. And I saw how it fits in with what we've talked about. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to focus primarily in verses 23 through 46, the end of the chapter. But to understand context, Jesus has just recently cleaned out the temple, cleansed it, purged it, if you speak, so to speak, turned the tables over uh, in quite a fit. It no doubt caused quite a controversy, rippling throughout Jerusalem, especially among the religious leaders. It is by no accident that, that Matthew, the author, puts together the parables and stories thereafter. Uh, in after this, Jesus comes upon a fig tree, sees no fruit there, and though so curses the fruit the next day, they see that the tree indeed withered and died. This was symbolic of the nation of Israel, who is often symbolized by a fig tree, uh, that they did not bear fruit. Uh, significantly, or uh, contextually, the fruit being they did not produce prayer for the Gentiles, or allow room for the Gentiles to have prayer, as specifically in the temple. But there is much more fruit that we've seen as we've studied the commands of Christ. Interesting enough, the first Adam went to the fig tree for a leaf to cover his shame of sin. But the second Adam, Jesus, came not looking for a leaf, but looking for the fruit, not to cover shame, but to be a blessing to God and a blessing to the nations. And so we have studied in the last few weeks about the commands of Christ, how Jesus has given us specific things that he has asked us to do. And, and as such, to be a disciple means to do these things and least of which it was reproduced, which means to have other disciples that would come and do these same commands of Jesus, and they too also reproduce. And so perhaps maybe one of the greatest measurements, if you will, of being a disciple is that there are disciples who have come from us who also are making disciples for Christ. Very simple, but that is exhaustive. It demands everything. And so we've looked at what fruit looks like in Scripture. We've seen that fruit uh, could look like your lips of giving lips of praise, that, that fruit could be the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians chapter 5, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, that of, of which is our conduct. Uh, we've seen that, that fruit could uh, be also light, that we are to show the light of Christ in Ephesians 5, 9, that that also is given uh, the message of fruit. Uh, then there's the fruit of righteousness that the Bible talks about. Then there's finally the fruit of converts. And so when we look at the New Testament, we see all of these representing fruit that comes from our life. Our lips, our conduct, how we live our life, righteousness, uh, and uh, that others come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow Him. All are fruit. In John 15, Jesus said that, that he has come that, and that we are to abide in him that will bear much fruit. And so, 
what I want to present to you from this passage in Matthew 21. As we see the picture of fruit here, I want to share with you that fruit is about authority. Fruit is about authority. Jesus is presenting the case here because the question is very much about authority. Now, if, imagine, if you will, just to help us understand where the religious leaders were at that time. What if Jesus came today in person, in body? And what if, just pretend with me, Jesus came this morning, came to this place, and I don't know what you would expect him to do, but what if, just play along with me, what if Jesus came, and as he came in, he toppled over the pews. And he took those little offering envelopes and the little note pages that there's a few of us that are really pretty anal about. You know, we just uh, obsessed about what this is to be. What if he just took them and scattered them? Just, ah, just scattered them. And what if he came and knocked over the pulpit? And what if he, he tore down the screen projector? Some of you, oh, that's good. But then he followed it up with throwing a, a, a rock into the stained cross. Messed up our instruments, and the drums were scattered, the sound system were, was messed up. And then he followed up and went to the preschool areas and, and trashed the rooms. Took the decor and just messed it up. And then, because that's not where all our treasure is, he went to our money markets and totally dispersed them out. Messed up our website, sabotaged our internet. What if Jesus did those things? But you would quickly say, but he wouldn't. (laughs) Right? Well, just imagine what the Jews thought when he comes to the temple and upturns the temple on a very key time, the Passover, when when everybody's coming. And they have in their mind, this is what religion looks like. And Jesus absolutely turns over their view of religion. You can feel perhaps a little bit more looking at it in today's language. But we always quickly say, but he wouldn't do that, right? Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure about that. And so we come to verse 23, and it helps you to understand the questions they're asking, and it's really more the spirit that he asks they ask it. And so, this being the word of God, I'm going to ask that we stand, read verse 23, and we'll go through verse 46. Remember, fruit is about authority. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? 
from heaven or from man. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his fruits to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to them, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I'll tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And all they were seeking, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You may be seated. And so, Jesus is bringing together concepts of authority and fruit. And he's speaking to a hostile crowd in the temple. And in these stories, we're going to see how the fruit and authority are connected. First of all, Jesus is asked to defend his authority. He doesn't. He refuses to. Why does he not defend his authority? They, they simply, by what authority do you have of upsetting our temple and teaching like you're teaching? They're not just inquiring. They're accusing. They're angry. And so Jesus realizes something. He realizes that they do not submit to the authority of God 
And so therefore, he will not reveal his authority. But he does it in this way. He poses a question back to him. He says, well, tell me, what do you think about John the Baptist? Everyone knew John the Baptist. He was a preacher, obviously was, was killed by this time, but had crowds coming to him. There was a movement of God that was starting, and he was preparing the way for the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, did not accept John the Baptist. Jesus knew that, and so he was asking them, hey, what do you think about John the Baptist? In so doing, he was asking a question. Would they be willing to admit that this authority is of God? If they're not willing to admit it, then he is not going to reveal. And so that's what happens. They said, you know what? We're not going to talk about that. Uh, they're afraid of man. The only authority they have is what man gives them. That's what they admit by saying we're too afraid of man to tell the people what we really think about John the Baptist. And so Jesus simply says, is simply saying to them, you don't submit to the authority of God? Why should I reveal any more about myself? Let me just tell you something. One of the greatest tools to help you to understand the Bible. It's not pen. It's not even pencil or paper. It's not the internet. It's not a commentary. The greatest tool you have to help you understand the word of God is obeying what you know from the Word of God. Jesus is simply giving us a principle that there is revelation going out about Himself to those who have ears to hear, those who will say, I submit to the authority of God. Just a little word out there. If you do not obey God, do not, under, do not expect that you're going to have great revelations from the Bible. It is wholly dependent on your obedience. And so he says, I'm not going to give it to him. Now, we keep on moving as we look at this story. He tells the story of two sons. And the lesson here is simply this. The recognition of authority in our life is repentance. That's the story, or that's the lesson of these two sons. The recognition of authority in our life is repentance. Here we have a, a man that owns a vineyard. We realize that the sons of the vineyard owner rarely ever work in the vineyard. That's what tenants do. That's what servants do. But yet this man asked his sons to do so. And so maybe this is beneath him. Uh, and so he asked this first son. Could have very well been the younger son. We don't know. But it's most likely the younger son that would be asked first. Uh, and, and so he asked the question, will you go and work? Now, the young son is the one that's brash, says, I don't want to color in those lines. Uh, I, that's an absolute no. I'm not going there. Now, that would have been a hugely disrespectful in that day and time. Here in America, at this time, when a child says no, say, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess you don't want to do that. But back then, if a child said no, then that was a huge insult upon the father. And then he goes to the second son. The second son is much more obliging. Of course, Dad. You are my father. I will go. But the end result is that the first son, though he says no, ends up doing. The, the word is he changes his mind. Verse 20, afterward he changed his mind. You know what that word is? That's the word for repent. He repented. He turned his thinking around and did contrary to what he said. And now the other son, 
uh, though he assented, though he said yes, did not go. And so the simple question, he says, which one did the will of the Father? And all the Pharisees, all the high priests, the ones that were religious, would have understood, you know what, it's pretty clear, the second son, or the first son is the one who is right with the Father, did the will of the Father. Notice what he says to them uh, in verse 31. He says, look, truly, amen. I'm about to say something that I'm going to amen myself beforehand. (laughs) That's pretty good, you know? You know you're about to say something good. Amen, all right? That's what Jesus, when he that word truly, that's what that means. I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wow, okay, tax collectors and prostitutes, known sinners in that day and time. Tax collector uh, betrayed their own country and did do so for the purpose of benefiting off of their countrymen. So I guess maybe an equivalent of this is maybe when the Nazi Germany comes and takes over France, and then the uh, citizens of France, those uh, that go in and say, okay, we're going to join in with the Nazis, and we're going to do so at the expense of our countrymen. That may be an equivalent to helping us understand tax collectors in that day and time, all right? Uh, And so Jesus says, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, they're going to come into the kingdom of heaven, but you don't. Now, how is that possible? How, it seems like that is just absurd. He's talking to religious people who are doing good, who are being moral, and he says, you're not repentant of the thing that is most critical, do you understand that you can do good things, you can go to church, and you can be morally good, but you overlook the critical matter that Jesus is looking for? Do you understand that? He's trying to help them understand that. Can we understand? So the question is, what is the critical matter that he is looking for in our life? fact of the matter is, I know too well that we can do a lot of good things with the hope of maybe it makes up for the lack of obedience in our life. Do you understand that? We can do religiously good things with the hope that maybe everyone will overlook the fact that we don't obey Jesus. That's not going to happen. You can put snow over a dunghill. But when that snow melts, that dunghill is dung still. We can have all kinds of religiously good stuff. But if there is in our heart a rebellion against Jesus as our king, it's still there. And that is the heart of the matter. So, what does repentance look like? What is the critical thing that Jesus is looking for? If, if he's not looking for whether just whether a tax collector is, is now good, or a prostitute is now good, what, what is, it, is he looking for? He's not looking at your record. He's not looking at your past. He's not looking at all the good things you've done or the bad things you've done in your past. What is it he's looking for? Well, he gives a little clue in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness... And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not have to change your minds and believe him. Notice there is a key in this repentance of believing John. 
And we could say now believing Jesus. Repentance in our life is going to look like belief. Repentance in our life looks like belief. Of course you should repent, tax collector. Of course you should repent. But he's not just talking about the tax collecting. He's not just talking about the prostituting. He's talking repentance that can heal the heart. What's the thing? Well, this takes us to the second story. The second story of of the tenant farmers. Verse 33. There's a master who planted a vineyard. A master that owned a vineyard would have been an investor. He would have had a wall. He would have had a tower to overlook and make sure that nothing comes and still, and he would have the workers there. But the primary reason he's got this is that he wants a return. He wants money. Some of you understand that. Some of you have land, and you use it for uh, agricultural purposes because you know you've got to pay taxes, all right? And so you need money coming from this land. And so you find ways to make that happen. And so this is what this landowner is doing. He needs a return on the land. And so uh, he has workers there, tenants. Tenants. Now, some of you I've talked to remember tenant farming. Some of you still have it around. Uh, Some of you grew up uh, with that background. The idea is that uh, you move into someone's land, you live on that land, you work that land. Now that land and the crops will belong to that owner, but you will get a portion of that which you work for, okay? And so you're constantly working, but you understand the whole way that this house ultimately belongs to the landowner, the land, the equipment belongs to the landowner, and so you have an understanding. Do you see that Jesus is putting a parable and he's telling us that we are all tenant farmers? So let me just tell you this. Belief looks like tenant farming. I need to unpack that a little bit. Belief looks like tenant farming. We said repentance has something to do with belief. Belief in what? Belief that we are tenant farmers. That all that we have is of God. So let's, uh, let, let me tell you a couple of things of which we are to believe from this story. Believe that we exist by God's grace for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. Believe that we exist by nothing but God's grace for the purpose of bearing fruit. This is where we get hung up on. This is the reason why we've done all the commands of Christ or or the, the categories of the commands of Christ is because this truth needs to be bedrock of our heart and life. And it's the one thing that we rebel against. You see, a religious person, a chief priest, can be religious, can work in the temple, can do all kinds of good things, as long as he has some idea that he is in control and that he can get pride and authority and respect for himself that the fruit of his life he eats. It doesn't go to someone else. So, what does that mean? Uh, we want all of our life to be for ourselves. We want independence. We hate the idea that we belong to God. 
There's two ways we go about this. There's overt. Forget about that morality stuff. Forget about uh, doing all the things God has asked me to do. I don't like it. I'm going to do my own thing. And so you move away from home and you do your own thing. You see that, right? Pretty common. That's one way we deal with it. But there is another way we deal with this that is much more, well, deceiving. The other way we deal with this is, okay, God, I'm gonna, I know that you exist. I don't want to surrender all of my control to you, but I don't like shirking everything about you. And so I'm going to have some facade of obeying you, Jesus, obeying you, God, and I'm going to do all the religious right things to do. And if I do all the right things to do, then I feel like that I can control God and that, God, you become my servant to do what I want done. And the problem is, is that life comes in and and it doesn't work that way. And we feel like God has betrayed us. God, I did all the good things. Why, why couldn't you just protect my family? I mean, I prayed all the time. What's the point of praying if you don't protect my family, God? There's probably going to be a time you say that. And you'll think that. And in that moment, you have to understand you're a tenant farmer. And that family doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And you can't control that farm for yourself. It is to surrender everything to God. Can you look at all of your life and realize I'm just a tenant farmer here? This house, this car, this family, these days that I live, my health that I have, the hair on my head or lack thereof, all of these things are God's. And the only reason I have them is sheerly God's grace given to me. But what does he want in them? What does he want? He wants fruit. Why else does a landowner have this land and plant a vineyard? He wants to receive from it. And that gets us to the point of obeying God, doesn't it? You remember all the commands of Christ we, we've talked about so far? We've talked about how the, the very first thing is going to be surrender. That we're going to have to give in to God by surrendering, by sacrificing to him. What does it mean to sacrifice is to say that we're going to give up something we love because we love something more. That we love God, that we surrender, that we sacrifice, that we listen to God. So the tenant farmer listens to the landowner. And so notice how the story goes. The landowner says it's time, verse 34, when the season of her fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The problem here is they didn't listen to the landowner. And so there is the, the obeying that comes now. After we surrendered and sacrificed and listen, we obey, we abide in Jesus, nourished by him. We let the light of Christ shine in us. And that takes us to the to the point where we now serve and we love and we share and we reproduce. 
It goes back to what does the landowner want in our life. And so we believe that we exist by God's grace for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. I came across a story uh, a number of years ago uh, in the News Observer. I happened to keep this. It was a, a research project using hidden video cameras and wireless microphones. That's never good, is it? Uh, with college students. And they went beyond asking the question, what would Jesus do, to find the impact of parables of Jesus today. So we're in a cozy Midwestern community that has 14 churches with only about 7,570 residents. Ought to be well taught, right? Well, here's what they found. Um, They put, dropped envelopes of money in a grocery store. They posed a fellow student as a low-key beggar outside of a church on a Sunday morning and had a student lie face down on the ground between the campus and local bars, pretending to be unconscious on a bitter cold night. See where this is going, right? And so they're focusing on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they're just watching what happens. Several professed Christians paused and walked past the collapsed man instead of checking on him. Summoning helps. Two girls who quickly walked to the other side of the street about 11.15 p.m. Both were members of the Christian Campus Fellowship. Later said they were nervous and probably would have alerted an RA or a resident assistant uh, in their dorm. Two students who were emergency medical technicians stopped. The most compassionate of those who tried to help? A group of drunken students. On Wednesday, Sunday, on a Wednesday Sunday morning, about half the people entering Emmanuel United Methodist Church said hello to Meek Luck. Meek-looking young man who gripped a sign that read, Just laid off, looking for some help. But only two spoke with him further, invited him in, inside out of the cold, and offered him help. Two or three others alerted the pastor who knew about the experiment. When Davis, uh, when those two students planted lost bank envelopes with up to $50 in cash on the floor of the, the pick-and-save, all 15 people, 14 Lutherans and one atheist in the grocery aisle, turned in the money to the customer service desk. Interesting. But when the students tried the experiment in the liquor section, beer aisle, <laughs> five out of the ten shoppers walked out of the store with the money. Some did it on Good Friday, as if that would make a difference. Um, all did it, even though the envelopes had a protruding to-do list whose first item was take mom to chemotherapy. Those who were willing to talk when they were stopped outside the store said they were Christians, including a group of three Lutheran women in their 20s or 30s. Most were embarrassed. Some were defensive. One woman in her, four, in her 50s and 60s who said she was a Christian but did not identify a denomination said she kept the envelope because it didn't contain a name and would be easy for anyone to claim and that she might as well be the one. The student said she very reluctantly returned the money after he told her that he could identify the bill's serial numbers. <laughs> They tried not to judge people's response. It blew them away that 15 out of 15 people returned the money. But realized that when the older man was outside the church looking for work, there was less than favorable response there. The fact of the matter is, it's so much easier to be religious. Isn't it? It is so easy to have the name Christian. It's not altogether hard to be here at church on Sunday morning, though enough of us struggle with that. 
But to follow Jesus Christ demands that we recognize that Jesus Christ owns us. And that we have nothing but by the grace of God. And the whole purpose of our existence is to bear fruit for Him. It's so much easier to claim Christians to do what we want to do and have our own agenda, isn't it? Because then we get the best of both worlds. We get the, the, the stigma of being a Christian, the comfort of that. We get some comfort of knowing something's going to happen to us when we die that we like. Some comfort to know that when bad things happen, that we've got God's peace, that we can go and we have people praying for us. We like that. But is there any way that we can have that and also do what we want to do? Well, good news for you is that in the Christian culture, yes, you can. It's prevalent. Good news. The bad news is it's not really what Jesus teaches. And the other bad news is eventually it will be found out for all that it is. And it will be found out at a time when there is no do-overs and the measures and at what's at stake is eternal difference but you know what there's a more important part of this isn't there there's a whole part of the story hadn't brought up what does the owner do well the owner is sending these servants he says give me give me fruit it's time that's what you're here for what what's the return and then you see how they respond. They, they kill him. So you know good and well that if the story was going to be realistic, at this point we call the police. Right? Okay, we have some tenants in the homes that we live. They're not paying rent. I sent my collector. They killed them. Th- that's, uh, that's a police matter, right? Um, hopefully... You know, you may have called police even before there's threats. But Jesus is about to stretch big time the, the lines of reality. It happens again. They stone him. There was a rabbi ruling that if you lived in a, a place for three years and you didn't pay the rent, that you didn't have to anymore. Yeah, I know, it's a crazy rule. But perhaps maybe they're thinking, you know what? If I just pretend like I don't really belong to God, then maybe I won't really belong to God. Jesus says, what is it? Profit a man if you gain the whole world, but forfeit your soul. And then verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. What, is, what, is, what does this landowner want? The landowner wants respect. So he sends his son. Now this is where reality is bent big time, isn't it? This is not what we do. This is a ridiculous. You remember, this, remember the movie Happy Days? Or the TV series Happy Days? There was a series, and, and now it's a common phrase. There was a, a specific episode where they had been going long enough, and, and, the, and they realized that the plot lines were getting dull. They needed to do something to revive the audiences. And so they had Fonz jump a shark while water skiing. 
Some of you remember that? I remember that very vividly, even as a child. Like, oh, whoa, he jumped a shark. And so now that phrase is, is, is coined now, and we use it to say that, that a TV series has jumped the shark, or something has jumped the shark, to say that they have gone now to a r- ridiculous storyline to try to capture the viewers. You know what God does here? He jumps the shark. He, he goes to a ridiculous measure. Why? If, if the landowner was really about collecting the fruit here, there would have been better ways. Right? Really, did he have to send a son? Just call the Roman authorities in and you get your fruit. Really, landowner, why are you doing this? You see, I told you that repentance in our life looks like belief. Belief in what? Belief that we exist by God's grace for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. But there's something else that we must believe. Believe that God desires you for no other reason but that he loves you. Now that sounds circular. Why do you, why do you want me? Because I love you. Well, why do you love me? Because I want you. What, what, what? It seems circular. But what if God said any other reasons other than the fact that he loves you. Imagine if you did that to your wife, or your husband, or your future significant other. And, they, and, they, and you ask the question, why do you love me? Why are you married to me? And they responded with something like, well, you know, you had a, a great figure. Or you had an amazing sense of humor, intellect. But it's now been 30 years since that first moment. How do you feel now knowing that the reason they married you is because you're a great figure? Plus 30 years. That puts a whole lot of pressure on you, doesn't it? Oh my goodness. What's going to happen now? But what if instead they said, you know what? I noticed you because of your sense of humor, your figure, and everything else. But now I love you, and I don't know why. I just do, and I'm committed to you. You tell the difference there? That's nothing to do with you anymore, does it? It's just something's going on with them. When, when this landowner sends his son, he wants their respect. That, that Maybe they'll respect my son. I, I've, I've already sent these guys, and, and they've killed them. And they've done it one after the other. But now I'm going to send See, you see what he wants? He doesn't want just fruit. He wants you. Jesus died on the cross because he wants you. And this is where the metaphor breaks down because he cannot commute everything that the death of Jesus did. The parable here talks about the desire of God. His, he's for you. And if you ever doubt, is God for me? Look at the cross. It is his statement for all eternity. God loves you. By which every circumstance from your life from that point on is to be judged by. And you say, well, God doesn't love me. Look at all the bad things he's done. He can't love me. And I said, how do you overlook the cross? 
Behind all these things that you see as bad, there is still the backdrop of the cross. God loves you. He desires you. But you see, when he died on the cross, he did much more than just express his desire for you. He satisfied God's holy demands for your life. The very fact that you have wasted and squandered your vineyard that God has given you. His death satisfied the wrath that God had for you on that. And instead replaces it with an incredible work ethic and desire of love for God by which fruit will be born and righteousness will be given. So there's so much more that Jesus does. But we don't want to belittle the fact that Jesus just wants you. The fact of the matter is, as I look at my life, God has been constantly working and speaking in my life. And I know and I believe that God has been working in every single one of your life individually. And he is communicating and has been trying to communicate to you in every message, every circumstance, and everything that you are a tenant farmer. That everything belongs to God. And he wants you to bear fruit for him. Look, just look at your life. Look at everything that you look at and you realize that God did something in your life and see if it's not true. And all the things that you recognize that God was working in your life, there will be that message. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And I want you to produce fruit to me and for me. Can you see it? It's there. Just look and look at your life and see how God has worked. He's wanting that message in your heart. And the fact is, I have rejected that message over and over and over again. Have you? Who's he talking to? He's talking to religious people. He talks to people who, are, who study the Bible. He's talking to people who memorize the first five books of the Bible. He talks to people who tithe everything, including the spices. That's the type of people he's talking to. And all along, they are rejecting. I, I don't belong to you, God. You belong to me. I am superior. I am better because I'm religious. I'm not like those tax collectors. I'm not like those drunkards. I'm not that, no. No, God is saying, you belong to me. But we keep rejecting that message. The beautiful thing is that though we've rejected the message time and time again, he still gave his love towards you that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the story here. And so, let me ask you, what will you do with this message? Another way Jesus said it was John 15, 6, the verse that we memorize. By this you glorify me, by bearing much fruit, and so prove that you are my disciple. 
You want the authority of God in your life? You have to be under the authority of God. To be under the authority of God looks like repentance. And repentance is not how religious you are, but looks like a certain belief that you are tenant farmers and you belong to God and God works for your fruit and that God loves you because of who you are. You ready to take that? You ready to believe it? Let me tell you a couple results of that. A hopeful humility. There is a humility in people who believe this. They don't see themselves as better than others. How could they? Jesus said tax collectors and prostitutes were coming in more than you. A hopeful humility to say there is no one that is outside the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you understand that you are not better because you're members of Green Pines? I assure you that would not be a blessing to to Nightdale. Bunch of people who are self-righteous? No, that's not going to help them. They can get that about anywhere. Hopeful humility. God saved me despite who I am. But also a second impact of this is a deep security in your relationship with God. You see, it's not, am I good enough? Have I done enough? It's what Jesus has done for me. You rest in that, hope in that, hold on to that, and let it change you. So that's our invitation. Will you be a tenant farmer for Jesus? You already are, it's just whether you recognize it. And to hold on to the fact that he loves you. Let's pray.